Blog Talk Radio. Nate Larkin, joined here in the studio with our fearless, peerless engineer, Mondo, and of course, our co-host from the left coast, Aaron Porter. How are you doing, guys? Doing good. Doing great. It is May. Come on. It's almost summer. Summer's upon us. Uh, We've got San Luis Obispo weather here, man. It is freaking gorgeous in Franklin today. Yes, it is. Uh, I, if I could so, figure out how to do this outdoors, I'd be I'd be outdoors right now. Well, you've got a phone, and we've got this new technology. I'm not sure what the problem is, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably could, probably could. Yeah. Well, so how did you guys celebrate your Cinco de Mayo? I know this is a big deal in Franklin, Tennessee, with your Irish culture. Yes, exactly. Um, I, you know, I, I stayed away from the Mexican restaurants on the 5th of May just because they were jammed. Allie and I went to barbecue instead. Yeah. But we had a, but we had a great time. Uh, yeah. yeah. Same thing here, that man. Almost, I mean, we, we, that, that we kind of stayed away from racist, by the way. How did you celebrate <laughs> Cinco de Mayo? I avoided Mexican restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you got a good point there. Uh, but but I, I feel you though. I feel you, Nate. I mean, we did the same thing. It's uh, we 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 actually went to walk around. There was something in our neighborhood. A uh, little, you know, it was some cookouts and stuff like that. So we walked around a little bit, but mainly kind of did our own thing actually. So nice. So so the Grimes have their own Cinco de Mayo celebration. All right. Yeah. Well, yeah. It it was just it was one of those things that it just really wasn't on our radar. You know what I mean? Uh, to be honest with you, I mean, no offense, but it really just wasn't. And uh, it, I mean, honestly, man, my wife remembered, uh, but for me, I didn't realize until we were walking through the neighborhood and saw the tent out. And I was one. I said, "What's everybody doing?" And she said, "Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> what planet are you on?" Yeah. yeah. So it, you know. So yeah, that's that's how out of it I was, man. All right. Well, maybe maybe it is more of a California thing. We do have a border closer to us, and, so. and you are closer to Mexico. So the <laughs> yeah, that so, was so what, border. What did you, Aaron? What, what did you, you, what did you do? I do? Well, well, it is my mother's birthday. I am blessed to have a mother who has a birthday on a holiday, so that I can remember it. And my father's birthday is on St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> Holy smokes! So I was always able to remember my parents' birthday, and I. Deeply appreciate that God worked that out. I believe in providence. I believe in God's divine hand in all things, uh, especially concerning my memory. So uh, I ended up going out to an Irish pub with my children while my wife rested. And uh, we celebrated Cinco de Mayo with nachos and uh, Mardi Gras looking beets. Yes. Oh, that's that's great. That's how we rolled, and we had a great day. Nachos and garlic fries. Wow. So, hola. Hola. Or arriba. Hey, hey. <laughs> well, uh, you guys, as as much as I would love to continue the talk about uh, Cinco de Mayo, and as much as I would love to have our customary mini-meeting, I move that we dispense with the normal uh, show format this week because we've got a very special guest joining us, and I'd like to give him plenty of time and time for our listeners to call in or email questions or comments to him. You guys good with that? Yeah, I'd like to second that. We've got Richard Rohr already on the line. Why don't you tell our guests that don't know who Richard is a little bit more about him and then give them a chance to start warming up their dialing fingers, Nate. Okay. All right. Well, Richard Rohr is um, 
he is a Franciscan friar who was ordained to the Roman Catholic priesthood in 1970. In 1971, founded the New Jerusalem Community in Cincinnati, Ohio. And in 1986, the Center for Action and Contemplation in Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, where he currently serves as the founding director. You know, I first heard of Richard shortly after the Samson Society got started when somebody slipped me a copy of Adam's Return. And uh, not long after that, From Wild Man to Wise Man, uh, books about the masculine journey. Uh, Richard had, through those books and uh, through pilgrimages that some of the guys here have made to New Mexico, uh, Richard has had a profound effect on the pirate monks here in Franklin, Tennessee, not just on us, but on the entire community here and on pockets of pirate monkery around the country and around the world. Uh, I uh, I then learned of his previous work uh, with the Enneagram, something I know, Aaron, you could talk with him about for hours, uh, if not days. Uh, Richard has challenged our thinking with books like um, – Everything Belongs, uh, The Naked Now. He's explored the spirituality of the 12 steps with Breathing Underwater, uh, given us a spirituality for the two halves of life with Falling Upward, and his most recent book, a, a beautifully written book about the search for the true self, Immortal Diamond. Uh, something that the the uh, competition between the true self, the false self, and the true self—something that we talk an awful lot about in the Samson Society—and it's for that reason uh, that I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you for joining us, Richard. I'm honored to be with you. Thank you. I'm impressed that you've heard of that many of the books. Thank you for your trust. <laughs> really. Now, callers. Uh, you are going to want to be in on this, so get ready to call the phone number, 347-850-1769. That's 347-850-1769, which makes the word, Nate, do you remember the word? I Well, you know, first of all, can we play the jingle? Do we have the jingle for the Mondo jingle? Mondo, Mondo. No jingle. There is no jingle. All right. Okay. Well, and a you know we, we, we're <laughs> we going to give you grace, and we can't come up with a jingle. What's wrong? <laughs> I know, but you, we want to give examples of grace because the cross is efficacy here. So there you <laughs> <Okay>. go, Monday. <laughs> All right. <sighs> but an alert listener did call in uh, or write in to give us uh, a handy dandy um, uh, anagram for the difficult-to-remember phone number, and it is this. Are you ready? You can call us at FIST501-POW. How awful is this? FIST501-POW. Yeah. All right. Or um, if you don't want to talk to us on the phone, we certainly understand. You can, if you are uh, a member of the Twitter nation, you can send a direct message via tweet to at Pirate Monk Radio. Or um, you can uh, you can write to us, although uh, you probably won't get here in time. You can email us at piratemonkradio at gmail dot com, and if it gets here uh, in time, we'll pass that question or comment on along to Richard. And all carrier pigeons need to go to the second floor of the Mellow Mushroom. So we're going to take a <laughs> quick break, and we will be right back with our interview with Richard Rohr. Yo-ho, yo-ho, a pirate's life for me. We guns, we plunder, we rifle, and look, they got me hardy, yo-ho. We kidnap and ravage, and don't give a hope, they got me hardy, yo-ho. Yo-ho, yo-ho, a pirate's life for me. And we're back on the Pirate Monk podcast and radio show extravaganza. Um... Richard, uh, I don't know how much you know about the Samson Society, about our community of uh, our our widely dispersed community of Christian guys. Uh, we got a lot of addicts among us, uh, uh-huh. a ton of us. Yeah. And, uh, in the book, uh, Immortal Diamond, your your most recent book, um, you talk about the connection uh, between the false self. 
and uh, addiction. I'm wondering, that's an awfully, just a broad brush kind of launching point. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, um, you know, the, the false self or the false selves, how they emerge, and how that connects to addictive behavior. Okay, let me try. Uh and this is just my vocabulary. Uh, if it isn't clear, please come back to me. By the false self, I mean building on other spiritual teachers like Thomas Merton, who we think we are, uh, the manufactured identity that all of us create. We have to. It's our reputation, our education, our clothing, our body shape, our occupation. All those things are fine. But in terms of the great history of spirituality, that that isn't who you really are. What we would say as Christians is who we are is who we are in God. And that is our objective identity from all eternity, from the moment of our conception, however you want to see it. Uh, that's the true self. So my uh, assumption would be, in fact, my experience with myself and others, is that the false self it gets us started, that's all. It's it's satisfying, usually through the first half of life, even. Mm. But eventually you start wondering, if you're on schedule, if you're growing, who am I really, beyond all these nomenclatures, all of these descriptions? So the false self is inherently dissatisfying. It it's okay, but it leaves you a little empty. It doesn't give you a sense of grounding. So that would be my connection, mm. uh, at least my understanding, of why we, we would be inclined to to uh, medicate ourselves. Because we're, we're sort of unsatisfied, unhappy, uh, discontented. So we're going to try to fill up that loneliness or that emptiness with you know, drugs or drink or promiscuous sex or consumerism, something to make us feel alive and important. Mm. Now, when when do you think this false self, um, which is really just uh, the, a result of the fall that we're we're putting on this Christless mask, right? Yes, that's when, right. When, when does this really begin to develop in us? Because there's different stages. I'm, I'm seeing yes. you talk about body image and adolescent mm -hmm. version and then workaholism that can come as an adult version or trying to be the best mother that can. So does that just sure. change over life or how's that work? Well, I, I think historically we would say that that it's about the age of seven, that we start believing our outer persona our outer identity and we start fashioning it and advertising it in the early years any of you who are fathers know this you know that's why children around the age of three or four are so adorable uh, they haven't really created a false self yet they mm -hmm. still live in what we would call unitive consciousness uh, but uh, in terms of scripture We'd say that around the age of seven, that's when we leave the garden, leave the Garden of Eden, and uh, you call it the fall. That's that's okay too. It's just different language for the same thing. Uh, and we apparently have to leave the garden. We have to put on this persona. And like I keep saying, it's not bad. It just shows itself to be inadequate and and unhelpful to the real spiritual task. Mm. You have this Thomas Merton quote in, in your book that I loved, and, and I guess it goes with that timeline, uh, because at a young age, I think we're not terribly interested in success, and that quote deals with success. Uh, Merton writes, if I had a message to my contemporaries, it is surely this, be anything you like, be madmen, drunks, and bastards of every shape of, and form, but at all costs, avoid one thing, success. If you're too obsessed with success, you will forget to live. If you've learned only how to be a success, your life has probably been wasted. Success is hardly ever your true self. 
only your early window dressing. It gives you some momentum for the journey, but it's never the real goal. You do not know that. However, in the moment, it feels right and good and necessary. It is for a short while. Tell me a little more about that, because that feels like that. that <laughs> well, that of course, for many of us, Thomas Merton was the the spiritual master of the last century who continues to be translated and read in all religions and all cultures, really. He had that marvelous ability to say things, as he does there, very forthrightly to catch your attention. So, that, that um, so That's so countercultural. It's about as countercultural to the American culture as you can get, because we are built on a success model, a climbing model, and again, I'm sure God is patient with that, but it does delay seriously the the actual spiritual journey, because we even try to make Christianity into to another way to be successful. Yeah, it appeals to the ego. It appeals to the false self. If I can think of myself as holier than thou, yeah. uh, and uh, I'm afraid we've pandered to that in in all of our denominations. Yeah, yeah. So what do I replace that with? I mean, the the first thought is, okay, if I'm not supposed to succeed, then I ought to fail. But that's not what you're saying. I, no, I no, you don't go out to to manufacture your own failures. Uh, enjoy the successes that come. In fact, when I give my men's retreats, I say, up to the age of 30, all of us need a few good successes to give you some self-confidence, some ego structure, uh, an appropriate sense of your own goodness and your own importance. But after midlife, your successes Really, I know we don't want to hear this, but your successes have really nothing to teach you in the second half of life. I'm 70 now, so I've had uh, some years to learn this. Everything I've learned uh, after the age of 35 or so has been from my mistakes, my failures, my disappointments, my sin, to use to use Christian language. Uh, those are the teaching moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so obvious, really. Once you say it, hardly anybody disagrees with you. They really don't. But it's funny that we don't say it that forthrightly. Mm. Yeah. Uh, hey, Richard, something that uh, struck me, many things. I mean, there wasn't a, there wasn't a page uh, in the book uh, in which at least one line didn't just reach out and slap me in the face. But oh, thank uh, you for your trust. One of, one of those – one of the many uh, – you made a reference to Bill W. Um, oh yeah, and and noted that he, he at one point uh, observed that, uh, in his opinion, nobody ever um, achieved real recovery until uh, I forget the exact phraseology, but but the uh, but the phrase was until they've um, experienced or achieved emotional sobriety. Yes. Uh, he also says, uh, I must make that in the other book, Breathing Underwater, uh, that until you'd had a vital spiritual experience, mm. uh, a vital spiritual experience really leads you positively into recovery. And then how that shows itself is what you rightly quoted there, what he called emotional sobriety, which I think is really brilliant. That guy was inspired. He really was. Because, you know, psychologists didn't even start talking about that for 40 more years yeah. after he wrote that in the 30s. But I found it to be true. Uh, you know, here at our center in Albuquerque, we probably have 30-some people on our staff. Uh, and they're good people. And we've had, over the 26 years I've been here, you know, a lot of staff come and go. And... Uh, I have to say, in working with people as an employer, as a friend, as a spiritual director, what screws up most of us is our damn emotions. They just mm. they just uh, uh, distort our perception. They our ego uh, wraps around them and gets offended and gets overly angry, and it's always attached to the false self. Your your true self really doesn't go emotionally up or down. 
when your emotions are on a roller coaster, one hour you're elated because, you know, a good-looking woman smiled at you, and then the next hour you're deflated because she didn't smile at you. Well, <laughs> uh, it's useless because it, it, it doesn't have any solid ground yet. And uh, I think if I if I don't sound overly judgmental, I don't want to, but that's most of America. That's most of the world. I don't want to pick on America. But most people haven't found their solid ground yet. And their emotions, frankly, jerk them around moment by moment. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad you made that connection because I think emotional roller coasters are almost the evidence of living out of the false self. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's, really. That's solid ground. I'm, I'm looking at especially some of the stuff you wrote um, early on, and then hopefully we tie to the, this resurrection idea. You wrote a couple things. Those of us who claim to be in God more often than not deny that we are already his children and create arbitrary hoops to jump through at which few fully succeed if they're honest. Mm -hmm. So we're denying what already is. That's right. Religion's job is purely and simply one thing, to tell us and keep reminding reminding us of who we objectively are. Now, the implication is who we are in Christ, who our true self is in the personal work of Christ, yes? That's it, yeah. And, you know, I just so people don't think this is some kind of trendy, current, new American or new age idea, you know, my I'm a Franciscan priest. My training is in the entire tradition, the early desert fathers and mothers, the patristic period, the mystics of the church. And this is what they all discovered. This is the tradition, mm-hmm. tradition with a big T. And what's so disappointing to me, even as a Catholic, we Catholics think we we have the whole tradition. Well, what I'm just telling you right now, most Catholics don't even know either. You know, yeah, they yeah. Uh, we call the last 50 years tradition. That's tradition with a little T. And uh, I just want to say that because I don't want people to think this is some trendy psychological idea. This is the great Judeo-Christian biblical tradition, that we are inherently children of God. And I could find, you know, 50 quotes in the Bible that would back that up. But we clergymen, for some reason, I don't know if it was to keep them coming back, not to 12-step meetings, but to coming back to church, we created this sort of what I call carrot-on-the-stick theology, where it's always, well, you can earn it, you can achieve it, you can work up to it. But to just mm-hmm. tell people, pure and simple, you already have it. But you do have to awaken to what you already yeah. have. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's, it's, what a deep thing when you said many clergy have made the Eucharist or communion into a reward for good behavior and missed the core gospel for the sake of a small contest where they just happen to give out merit badges. Religion's yep. job is to keep reminding us of what we only know in part. Yeah. Oh, you read beautiful. well. Thank you so much. <laughs> that lines like that would strike you. It speaks well for your own journey and your own maturity. Thank you. Hey, uh, Richard, well, I'd like to uh, come at you from out of left field a little bit. Uh, left, right. left field being my own experience. Uh, uh, I not everybody in the Samson Society has a history of sex addiction, but, but that's my story. Yes. Uh, uh, and I have certainly uh, fallen victim to the to the, to the uh, you know the rat race of just battling the shadow self and you know yes. management trying to suppress it. Uh, I'm grateful that I'm past that. Um, the great pioneer in the study of sex addiction is a guy named Patrick Carnes. Yes, I read his book years ago. Yeah. If you remember uh, what he has distilled as the four core beliefs of the sex addict, this comes from the thousands of sex addicts that he's worked with. Um, 
and he says that 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 um, sex addicts as a group or individual, typically they they hold these four things to be true about themselves. Number one, I'm a bad, unworthy person. Uh, number two, no one would love me as I am. Number three, my needs are never going to be met if I have to depend on others. And number three, or number four, um, sex is my greatest need. Um, my greatest what? What was that word? Uh, sex is my greatest need. Yeah, need. Okay. Yeah. 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 I, I, how would you, as a as a Christian brother, uh, as a priest, as a clergyman, as a spiritual director, um, address those beliefs in somebody who is suffering from them. Wow, I forgot he said that so clearly. And, you know, just so you don't have to, except for the last one, just apply those to sex addicts, I think that's most human beings. (laughs) We all think we're somehow not good enough no one would love us if they really knew what we were like. That's what uh, the old church called original sin, this endless capacity that I am unworthy, radically unworthy. Uh, so I think he's naming it uh, accurately. You know, in working also over the years with some sex addicts, it wasn't my primary work, but... Uh, I found a a more subtle way to name it. I don't know if you'll find this helpful. Mm. I found that most were romance addicts. Mm. They liked the game of, you know, uh, presenting themselves as attractive, being found attractive, being desired. Uh, the, The dance of romance. And, and when they could, address it that way it took away some of that horrible shame that i'm you know merely a sex addict as you know your our primary sexual organ we men it's not our penis it's our mind yeah yeah and the mind games we play uh and if you address it on that level it's the dance of romance that would it's so dang exciting to have someone attracted to you and find you desirable. We call it mirroring. And now I'm going to jump to religious language, but you know, if we don't let God mirror us radically, objectively, foundationally, and call us, as he did Jesus, a beloved son, if I don't experience my beloved sonship, then I'm going to try to get that beloved status from another human being. Why wouldn't you? It's not even evil. It's totally predictable. It isn't going to finally work, but uh, it works for a while. And uh, God must be very patient with us that we all go through these dances of wanting to be mirrored as a beloved. And for many people, that becomes the entranceway whereby they can experience the divine mirroring the, that if if this woman, this man, this person uh, could love me, maybe God could too. So even God, that's what I mean when I say an immortal diamond, that God uses even our sin, our mistakes, to bring us to God. Yeah. Well, There's almost no other way, really. <laughs> it's surprising you even have to say that. Yeah. yeah. Well, Nate, we've got a call. Can we jump into a call? Yeah, I think we can. Uh, who All do right. we have on the line, Aaron? We've we've got a call from uh, Mr. Scott Dente. Uh, this is my way of getting a phone call from him. So, hey, Scott, you're on the line. Hello, <laughs> gentlemen. How are you all today? Good, good. Uh, we're we're even better now that you're here. Well, I figured I'd better call in. Maybe that would get Aaron to stop talking for a little while. <laughs> uh, uh. Have well, you got a I, comment I, or a question for Richard and Scott? I, so, I certainly do, Richard. It's so so good to uh, be able to speak to you on the phone, and, and I'm uh, I'm so grateful for uh, for your work and wise uh, Wild Man to Wise Man and Adam's Return. 
changed my life and many of the men I know as well. And oh, I had thank the, you, thank you. I had the I had the great opportunity to come to a men's rite of passage five or six years ago in Arizona. Oh. And and as I as I was coming back from the desert on the on the last day and on the last evening, I don't, I don't want to give it, give anything away. But as I looked around at the sixty or seventy men that were that were there, I. I couldn't help but feel um, a certain amount, not not just of, uh, I felt a certain amount of grief as I looked around. There were so many men, uh, I'm I'm 50 this summer, and there were so many men that were older than me and even men into their 70s and 80s. And here we were at a men's rite of passage that was, you know, an initiation that I, I imagine that all had missed out on when yes. when we when we were boys and so there was there was a certain amount of there was a lot of joy but there was also a, an amount of grief and I got to speak to you that weekend at the, on the last day you came in for the last day and we talked a little bit about initiating young men and you talking about how we were a, a certain amount of generations away from getting back to that and I just wanted to know you know as 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 I look in Wise Man, uh, Wild Man to Wise Man, in the back of the book, there's a there's a chart that you wrote about the masculine journey, about the spiritual journey of a man. And, you know, that book is now you you wrote that book some time ago, and I'm not I'm sure all of it still applies. But I wonder, as a man of 70, how you're now looking at these later stages of King and, and uh, what I would call the Sage, and how a man of 50 can can continue to avoid to you know, becoming the old fool that you that you speak of <laughs> in in that book. So anyway, obviously, just there's a comment there, but also also just a question about where you what you're how you're perceiving this journey now at, at 70 years old as well. You know, to quote Thomas Merton again, since he came up, he said, "God only puts a desire in your heart for something or a curiosity about something when God." Uh, already intends intends to answer that or give you that and the fact that you would even be interested at the age of 50 about what it means to be an elder or a sage or a wise man tells me uh, and trust me on this you're already on the path <laughs> or you wouldn't even have curiosity about it you wouldn't even have desire for it unless you already have a little bit of it so just trust that desire in terms of Christian language, we would call that the indwelling Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit within you prompting you about where God wants to lead you already. That's why Jesus says all our prayers will be answered. Your true prayer comes from that place. Uh, so, you know, that diagram that I have in the back of Wild man to wise man. I guess I wrote that 20 years ago or so. <laughs> yeah, I think you did. I, I think I, when I was about your age. And I think I've used it with many groups. It's been translated into other languages. And I think I'd still hold to it. I, uh, I'm sad to say many do become the old fool and don't go on the wisdom journey, uh, which is the holy fool, as you remember. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I, I think it, it still matches my experience. Mm -hmm. and, and I wish I could say that there were more men who became the holy fools, the happy, wise old men, uh, but there's a good enough percentage that do, and that gives me hope. It gives me hope as well, and um, once again, uh, I'm eternally grateful for your work, um, in, in my own life and the lives of the, the men in my community as well. So it's it's an honor to be able to, to speak with you. Thank you. Where are you from, Scott? I, I'm from I'm from Nashville. I'm originally from the Northeast. Oh, you're from been... that area. Okay, good. Well, good to talk to you. Thank you. You as well. Thank you. And Richard, I want to tell you, your instincts are right with Scott. Uh, he's a, he's a guy who already uh, carries wisdom and men. Uh, seek him out and uh, defer to him. He's a yeah. natural leader. He's he's moving that although, direction. Although we did get a text from Los Angeles saying that it took him an awful long time to ask his question. So <laughs> I... <laughs> hey, I want to I want to ask a question. Uh, 
you talk about God being the great allower. Yeah. And that, that becomes, uh, as I was listening to some of Nate's uh, questions about some of behavioralism and, and struggles with behavior, uh, it, it came kind of uh, boiled down to the statement, God is both scandalous and a supreme disappointment to most of us, if we're honest, in his being uh, so willing to trust us with so much. And, and that seems to become an excuse for a lot of bad behavior. It even connects with the journey that Scott's talking about to avoid becoming that old fool. So how, you know, in this journey of staying, keeping identity in Christ and yes. not using this as an excuse for false self when God is is doing all that. I, I just want to hear you talk a little bit about that because I think that is, is so complicated for many of us. Yes, uh, you're making a very good point. You know, to put holy things, the Bible, uh, the sacraments, the priesthood, uh, uh, Bible study, whatever, in the hands of unconverted people. They mm -hmm. will always misuse it. <laughs> they will use it, as the false self does everything, for purposes of their own self-aggrandizement. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that is the risk. Uh, you know, I'm glad you started with that quote I used in Immortal Diamond, uh, God is the great allower. And I, I admit, it's it's disappointing to me. Why did God allow those three men in Cleveland to, you know, make sexual slaves out of three girls for ten years? Why didn't he step in earlier? I don't know. <laughs> or why did God allow the Boston, you know, uh, bombs uh, to kill people? I don't get it. I really don't. And yet I can't deny the evidence. That God is it, it doesn't jump in yeah. and change a lot of tragic things. The best I can come up with, and this is traditional teaching, I think, is that when we bring those tragic things to God, God is able to use them for great purpose. But why God allows them in the first place and why God allows immature people to use even God's mercy and forgiveness as an excuse to keep being immature. <laughs> I think I, I seem to hear that in your question, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. God is a mystery to me still, a, a big mystery. And most of my books are written out of struggling with that mystery and yet not being able to deny that when I stay with that struggle, I always experience grace and mercy and love and freedom. Uh, that's the best I can say. Wow. Thank you for that. Well, I hope well, so. Nate, Thank you. Nate, should we take a quick break while we give people a chance to call in and... Uh, and then we'll get back to more questions for our special guest. That's uh, a good idea. Let's give him the number again. It's 347-850-1769. Or FIST 501-TOW. <laughs> is this show on live? Or is this a uh, rebroadcast? Yeah, it's being recorded live, and it will be... Uh, Put up immediately as a podcast. Most of our people uh, downloaded as a podcast, but a few uh, who are available in the middle of the day will catch it. Middle of the day, gotcha. Caught in the onslaught, the pleasure appears. On looks the one who treasures our tears. A magical moment. A mystery made plain To find in each other The wisdom of rain Let it fall And roll down your face Let it fall Like the lavishing of grace In your arms every sadness 
refrain Surprised by the wisdom of rain A flower of diamonds A ring of white gold A promise for life Until we are old Help for the strife and strength when we strain to seek in the present the wisdom of rain. Let it fall and roll down your face. Let it fall like the lavishing of grace in your arms every sadness. And we're back on the Pirate Monk podcast, back with uh, our guest, Richard Rohr. Uh, Richard, uh, you had me from the preface in Immortal Diamond. Uh, you know, if we had the time, I would just read it aloud for the benefit of our listeners. But instead, I'll, I'll uh, urge them to go out and buy the book. But you, you opened with a quote from Acts uh, chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas. Well, yeah. Not getting a hearing in the synagogue and saying, since you do not think yourselves worthy of eternal life, we must now turn to the pagans. And then you open with with, uh, these lines, if you'll allow me. I'm writing this book for secular seekers and thinkers, believers and non-believers alike, and that huge disillusioned group in recovery from religion itself. Surprisingly, these are often more ready to see and honor mystery than many religious people are. I can no longer wait for or give false comfort to the many Christians who are forever, quote, deepening their personal relationship, unquote, with a very tiny American Jesus who looks an awful lot like them. Um, and, you know, I hear in those words, whether I don't know whether you intended it or not, but a, a, a little bit of kind of loving frustration, the same kind of thing. <laughs> I hope it's loving. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, do you find that you get uh, most of your opposition from uh, worried uh, religious people? Oh, definitely. Uh, and yet, you know, by the grace of God or something, I'm still a priest in good standing. Yeah. I, I would think that's because the powers that be know that I am teaching Orthodox Christian doctrine. And yet, uh, when you do expose people to what I called earlier the entire tradition, the whole Judeo-Christian uh, tradition, the people who fight you the most are very often pious invested uh, people in a very much smaller tradition, a much smaller period, Mm -hmm. which they take as normative. So uh, they think you're a heretic. They think you're whatever. It doesn't really matter. But uh, religion is often the greatest enemy of spirituality because religion has too often been a substitute for an authentic search for God. Yes. on authentic spirituality. And I've been a priest 43 years. I've taught on all continents now. I've stopped traveling when I turned 70. But uh, you just see it. it. It constantly takes different forms. And then you go back and you read the gospel. And my gosh, that's what Jesus had to put up with. As you know, his his greatest opposition came from the scribes, the teachers of the law, and the high priests. Yeah. Um, so this seems to be almost a prophecy of what's going to happen, that religion is going to fight uh, itself Yeah. Uh, when it wants to stay at the lower levels, if I can call it that, where it's all about me, and it's all about me being right, and it's all about me being first, and... Uh, until you get people beyond that, they will pretty much misuse all religion. I don't care what religion it is or what denomination it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I often uh, I often tell audiences that um, 
I made very slow progress in recovery. It was it was a good three years before I was able really to get a taste of real sexual sobriety. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, and I attribute that largely to my religious arrogance. Um, and you say quite oh. rightly here in the preface that spirituality is how do you put it? Uh, tends to be more about unlearning than learning. Yeah, uh, I had an awful lot to unlearn. Yep. Uh, and, uh, and part of that uh, was this: uh, I had kind of this moralistic bent that uh, uh, that somehow sin was, uh, that, you know, this addiction was something I had to battle and overcome. Uh-huh. Uh Before God could love you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. See, God doesn't love us if we change. God loves us so that we can change. Yes. And we always put the cart before the horse. Uh, Early stage religion is, by and large, moralisms, just as you said. Yes. Late, mature religion is mysticism, where you live in what I call unitive consciousness, that you're... You're already in union with God, and it's out of that experienced union, which gives you immense peace that the world cannot give, as Jesus would put it, uh, that allows you then not to need these other uh, things that we all fill ourselves up with, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so you're so right. You're you're just classic journey, you know? Mm -hmm. And we all start there as a young. A little Catholic boy growing up in Kansas, which is where I grew up, that's how I started, too. I thought it was all about obeying commandments and pleasing God and getting God to like me and notice me. So uh, God's been through this billions of times, I think. (laughs) (laughs) But a lot of people hold on to that moralism. Yeah, yeah. And it never gets you anywhere, never. It just makes you very judgmental of other people. Mm Mm-hmm. And of yourself too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Did that characterize any of your early ministry when you uh, started the first community there in Cincinnati? You look back on it now. Yeah. Well, you know, I was very lucky. I feel like I was born in the before, you know, well during the Second World War, but before the reforms of the '60s, the Second Vatican Council for us Catholics. And then I studied theology during the time of the 60s, when everything was blowing open. Uh, You're probably not old enough to remember that, but it it allowed me to grow up somewhat naturally. I began very conservative and traditional, like all of us were in the 1950s. And uh, so I was taught very good Catholic theology. I mean... Uh, the Franciscans who taught me had been studying in Europe during the 60s, came back and gave us good scripture, good uh, everything, really. Yeah. So I, by the time I was ordained a priest in 1970, that was after the Vatican Council, I don't think I was trapped in moralism anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I certainly was into the mid-60s. Uh, because I was formed in the 50s, when that's the way we thought. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we all were there together in many ways. Yeah. So, no, I, I, by the grace of God and the good training the Franciscans gave yeah. me, especially in spirituality, I think I've been led beyond moralism to early experiences of what I would now call mysticism. And don't let that be a scary word. All I mean by mysticism is experiential knowledge of God, where you know it for yourself, by by inner experience, by by prayer, by communion with God. You you learn on your own, and that's available to all of us, I think. Yes, yes. Yeah, even in those traditions where mysticism is a bad word. Yes. personal experience uh, is is a good word. And, and it's that's a good word. That's right. Yeah. Most of Protestantism made mysticism a bad word, which was very unfortunate. Because yeah. uh, if you name it, then you can critique it also. Do you see? Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm glad you said that experience was a good word in Protestantism. So mm-hmm. just build on that. Yeah. 
Richard, we've yeah. got another call from Nashville from Michael, so let's find out what you got going on. Michael, hello, you are on. Okay, yes, thank you. Richard, the reason I'm calling is I have a question, and that is in regards to how I might best help other men come into accountability. I have a, a testimony that includes having come to the Lord, been told 27 years ago I had six weeks to live because I had become infected with what they call GRID at the time, we now know as HIV. And so soon after that, the Lord brought a woman who became my bride. I now have two grown daughters and my second grandbaby on the way. Wow. And so living with AIDS, having come out of a gay lifestyle after 15 years and now a bride of 25 years, you are the first one who five years ago I began to read the writings of. And so as you've spent so much time and years studying the varying cultures processes of helping young boys cross over to become men, this is what I have in my heart more than anything else to be able to walk forth with in ministry. So what do you recommend? Well, thank you for giving a bit of yourself there. Thank you for your trust. Uh, you know, men are actually rather simple human beings. We're not that complete. Is that I've found in years of working with men's groups that all men need, I don't care if they're simple, uneducated guys or uh, very sophisticated, over-educated guys, men uh, want to feel respected. Respected. Okay. Yeah. Uh, if you grant them that respect, normally they will give you a hearing, which means you have to respect their background, their experience, and not write it off. And not override it too quickly with, let's say, overly Christian vocabulary, mm -hmm. which is usually in-house language, you know? Yeah. Um, the reading we had in our lectionary for today, I, I had Mass here this morning at the local Catholic parish. I only do it once a week. And the reading today is, is where Paul, in the 17th chapter of Acts, is preaching to the Athenians. And he reminds them, you know, uh, that this God is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. And your own authors say you are his offspring. So he uses very neutral language. He doesn't use Jewish language. Mm -hmm. He doesn't use his new Christian vocabulary. He uses neutral language that can make sense to pagan Athenians, Athens. Uh, I think we have to do the same thing. We've got to honor the experience of the man right in front of us and talk in a way that he can feel respected. So that would be my overall advice. And that also means that if you're talking to young boys, you've got to make sense in, inside of their vocabulary too. Mm -hmm. I must admit, as I've grown older, I find that harder to do. Uh, I, at 70, I I don't know how teenagers think anymore. I really don't. So I need uh, younger men like you and men who are fathers to yeah. um, to make that transfer. All right. Well, thank you. That that's really quite an exceptionally simple but very helpful answer. And so I I will make it uh, something for me to do and getting in touch with you through email and some of the information of the sites that you might know so that maybe we could dialogue further in the future. But I do want to say thank you because that, that really speaks clearly. Oh, well, it says more about you than me. It says you were ready for it. Thank you, though. All right, sir. <laughs> nice. Thanks for the call. Good, good question. It is. Well, your false self is how you define yourself on the outside of love, right. relationship, or divine union. For those that are listening to this and saying, okay, I've got an awful lot of false self-identity going on. 
what would you say to them as we're drawing to the end of our time? What, what is the first step towards that identity in Christ, that true step that mm-hmm. is not built on a legalistic, moralistic religiosity, trying to find itself in that, which is just another veneer? What What would you say a first step to a person whose heart has been uh, inspired by this conversation? Well, that's a good uh, a drawing together question. The The first thing you have to recognize is that there is a true self. You see, if you don't know there is such a thing as the true self, which, as I said, is, as far as I'm concerned, the, the good news, the gospel, announcing that you are all hidden with Christ in God, as Paul says in Colossians, that you're all beloved sons, as Jesus discovered in his initiation in the desert. That's that's the conclusive message of authentic initiation, that you know experientially that you are a beloved son. Now, once you can touch upon the true self, then you don't have to go after the false self, attacking it or fighting it. That just increases your ego. Uh, it really does, you know. You you just start recognizing that you don't need it. That it when people offend it or attack it or it, you lose your job or you lose your reputation or you lose your positive self-image and all of those things eventually happen. If you're growing in your 40s and 50s, uh, that's what falls away. Now you'll have the courage to let it fall away. Mm. Don't go attacking it. You understand? Just don't believe it anymore. And, And so I have often said that it's only the true, the false self that takes offense. You know, Paul says in Corinthians, love takes no offense. So I would offer you that as the most simple rule of thumb. When you find that you've been offended, what is what part of you was just hurt? What part of you just got upset? I can tell you almost absolutely, it's always, always your false self. You you can't offend the true self. It just, you know, when someone makes fun of you, oh, it hurts for two seconds or maybe five seconds or maybe a minute even, but it rolls off your back. You know, it, it, you can't o- offend someone who is living in God. Mm. Uh, you really can't. Uh, uh, that's That's the secret is watch when you take offense. When you feel, well, he didn't notice me, or why didn't he use my title, or why didn't he recognize I'm the CEO here, Uh, that's all your false self. And uh, so that'll give you almost an opportunity two or three times a day, I'm sure, uh, to recognize your false self and to not give it too much homage. Mm. Yeah. Watch when you're offended. Well, that is great. Go ahead, Nate. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful, um, instructive uh, note on which to end this conversation. Uh, Richard, once again, uh, on behalf of our group here and all our many listeners, I want to thank you for taking time uh, to talk with us. This uh, conversation is going to be replayed thousands of times, I'm sure. and it's so kind of you to do it. Thank you. I'm honored. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. God bless you all. Lord bless you, Richard. Thank you. Bye. And, and, and we'll next, be right back. For, we'll be right back for closing thoughts in just a moment here on the Pirate Monk Podcast.
Pirate Monk Podcast and Radio Extravaganza. Uh, I don't know about you, but I love that conversation. And if it challenged you, uh, good. If you don't um, agree with everything that was said, good. Um, but the Samson Society is a community where we practice the uh, almost forgotten Christian art of listening. The unanimity, unanimity is not required. Uh, we our faith rests in the love of God, and uh, I uh, feel the love of God when I'm in the presence of, whether personally or in print, uh, Richard Rohr. So it's good to have him with us, wasn't it? What do you say, Aaron? I had a I had a good time listening to him, and he does have that fatherly voice. So it was uh, I, I felt loved on. Yeah. And next week we've got Dennis Swanberg. Oh yeah, gonna mix it up. The uh, great, great funny man Dennis Swanberg is gonna be on next week. So that uh, that should be the other end of the spectrum, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, although I expect the gospel to come through with uh, in our conversation with him as well. Hey, uh, do follow us on Twitter. Uh, help us build those numbers up. And if you listen to uh, this podcast on iTunes, give us a rating. That helps uh, uh, our visibility there in the iTunes thing. Uh, don't forget, if you have an Android device, you can follow us or you can listen on, on uh, Stitcher. Uh, I think that's it. Until next week, I'm Nate Larkin on behalf of the Commodore, Aaron Porter, and our fearless, peerless engineer, Mondo, and our executive producer, Jay Spiegel. Goodbye. We'll see you next week here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Yo-ho! Give yourself time to heal All of my people To renew your troubled mind And everybody say Whoa, whoa Put your hands up Recovery Say whoa, whoa Recovery 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 Say whoa Recovery, Recovery. Recovery.
by the pavement starting over Picking up pieces on our road And birds burned by the system we are under Giving up is all 